A quick disclaimer before we get going, Pushing the A is neither sanctioned by Maureen nor is it sponsored by anyone that is a real human being. So if you're listening to this, thank you for fighting back against the system. And in this case, it is both a test and the real thing. Welcome back to Pushing the A with me, your host, Will. Coming fresh off a late night of news and a hoarse voice, given the fact that I spoke for about two hours <laughs> creating the last set of podcasts and was unable to speak yesterday. So that's why this is coming a day later. But I'm here. I've got my NPR mug. Filled with apple cinnamon tea and ready to talk about popular sovereignty, which is very exciting. So let's get right to it. The year is 1848, and the United States has just acquired this massive plethora of new land with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. The parties, though, the major parties at this point are the Whigs and the Democrats. They want to avoid slavery, uh, talking about slavery per se, at all costs. However, when you get a bunch of new land, questions are inevitably going to arise about should there be slavery here, and the North and the South split on this. Unsurprisingly, the North is less convinced about there being slavery than the South. The Democratic Party decides to completely ignore the issue. They nominate General Lewis Cass, who is considered the father of popular sovereignty, which is essentially, uh, I don't want to say an academic theory, but a political theory where you say, uh, territory can best decide if slavery is right for it by voting on it themselves. The um, It is a democratic appeal. It is appeal, it's an appeal to republicanism and to democracy. Uh, and moreover, it is a nice homage to compromise. But on the other hand, it could help the spread of slavery. Zachary Taylor, who is not really a politician... Um, is running for the Whig Party at this point, at least I believe so, unless the unless the uh, book got it wrong. No, the book the book got it right. Zachary Taylor, not really a politician. My notes are out of order, which could do it. Um, so let's talk a little about Zachary Taylor. The Whigs nominate him. Clay and Webster, for the last ten years, have been the natural nominees for the party. They've been waiting to be nominated. They have too many enemies. They've made too many people pissed at them over the years through their time in Congress. Taylor does not run an issues-based campaign. Uh, he's wishy-washy, and it's really just all about virtue. Abolitionists, industrialists, people that are annoyed about Oregon, and uh, other people that have just generally been left behind by their party's uh, standpoints, create the pro-Wilmot Proviso. Uh, the Wilmot Proviso, if you weren't here for the last episode, basically states that there should not be any slavery in these new territories. They create the Free Soil Party, which Martin Van Buren joins and runs for. Um, the Free Soil Party is not appealing to people based on the idea that slavery is morally repugnant. Instead, they're saying that slavery is bad for the whites, which I guess did, did have some truth to it. Um... And the way the book explains it, it basically says that free land uh, is equivalent to upward mobility, 
if there are slaves, though, that free land will be taken up immediately. The wage workers can't go buy that land, and then they can't work their way up through the system. The American dream isn't really able to occur. The two major candidates, though, Taylor and the other guy, Mr. Lewis Cass, you can guess who wins by that exchange, turn it, as it always does, into a personality fight. Turn it, as they always do, into a personality fight. Taylor wins, Martin Van Buren siphons away votes as a third-party candidate always tends to do. You're going to see this a lot. Taylor is not really a politician, which brings us back to this note card. Uh, in 1848, gold is found, and by 1849, people are rushing on over to California. Sutter's Mills, the first place, are called the 49ers, not the football team. Horribly bad football team. Tens of thousands of people's head to, people head to California, and they are... They are not the most law-abiding sort of folk. Um, it's complete disarray and lawless out in California. Crime goes way up. California, though, decides to apply for statehood without slavery. Zachary Taylor, really pumped about this. The South is less pumped about this, and here's why. The 1850s, heading into the 1850s, the South was expecting to be well-off. They're overrepresented in the White House, um... They have a majority in Congress, and the Senate is even slave-free. There's Slavery doesn't seem threatened as an institution, but they're worried about this balance. If California enters, suddenly it's 16 to 15 free states, suddenly the Senate can start passing anti-slavery motions, and there's really not a lot of slave territory left. Moreover, they're worried that if California enters as a free state, they're setting the precedent for the rest of this territory that they just got from Guadalupe Hidalgo. Meanwhile, Texas, doing something completely on its own, not for the first time, not for the last time, really wants this land that is east of the Rio Grande or somehow of their, and somewhere near their border. They really want some piece of land, is what you need to know. Um, and it's not really theirs. Also, in this time period, slavery in D.C. has been abolished. Um, and suddenly now... There's this limbo, there's this middle ground between heavily enslaved Virginia and slightly less heavily enslaved Maryland, but two pretty staunch slave states of free ground, which slave owners are not happy about because it's just not that far to run away to. You live in the area, most likely, if you're listening to this podcast. It takes me about, I would say, 40 minutes walking to get to Maryland from my house, Max. Um, additionally... Because of all of this, suddenly both sides are getting a little more antsy about slavery, and it's only going to continue. Slaves are also just running away even when it's not close by, via the system called the Underground Railroad, which I'm sure you all learned about in elementary school. It is a chain of anti-slave homes, and eventually the slaves work their way up through these homes to Canada. The forewoman of the system, it's not really the right word, the Moses of the system, as she's called, is Harriet Tubman, who rescues 800 uh, slaves in 19 tries, including her own parents. And the glory of Tubman is exaggerated. She was incredible in what she did. She was not. She did not rescue millions of slaves. But the South really hates this on principle, this idea that slaves can run away, and they are doing it pretty successfully. So they start asking for a tougher fugitive slave law than 1793, 
Fugitive Slave Law, the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793, which is really unenforced in a lot of places, your Massachusetts of the world. The slave owners really want a law to make sure that the slaves will not run away, and if they do run away, they will be taken back, and currently that law does not do it. And the numbers are not astounding. The numbers of slaves running away, it's a noticeable amount, but it's not crazy high. It's not that every slave is running away. Again, the principle that they have, that they can and they are doing this, is the problem. So it's 1850, and California wants in. The South sort of mulling over this potential idea of secession. They're sort of taking a first first taste of secession. What's whatever when you go to a fancy restaurant, the amuse bouche, I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation, but they hand you like a little little pickle on a cucumber with a sardine on top and they say it's to excite your taste buds and you say, Really? This doesn't look that exciting. The point being, the South is sort of turning slavery a slave a slavery regarding secession regarding slavery over in its mouth they're considering it south carolina first to go when they actually do secede um is considering it and there's going to be a convention of potential seceders in nashville in 1851 so congress gets together and they say you know what enough is enough on this front we need to get the new guard and the old guard together so the uh, old guard are people along the lines of your Clays and your Douglases and your Calhouns, uh, and your New Guard is more along the lines of um, your Stephen Douglases and that sort of people. So they all get together in Washington. Um, Henry Clay is 73 years old, and they, or he rather, he rather comes in and advocates like crazy for compromise. Stephen Douglas, who is a senator from Illinois, backs him up. He basically says that everyone is going to have to make concessions, but it's going to all be worth it for the sake of the Union. The North is slowly beginning to agree to this stronger fugitive slave law. So here comes Calhoun, John C. Calhoun, uh, who had something to do with the nullification crisis, if I recall correctly let's see yes john c calhoun was um a nolly back in the early 1830s he is really worried about states rights southern states rights specifically and he says that if we talk about slavery if we have this conversation the only potential outcome is division the only potential outcome is the civil war everyone else is like eh whatever um then he dies, and he begins mourning the South. His last words are something along the lines of, Oh, the South, what will become of her? Or something along those lines. Which is about what you would expect from a guy who decided to nullify a tariff because he didn't like it. Daniel Webster has a three-hour speech. It's the 7th of March speech, and he basically lines outlines the plan for what the compromise of 1850 is going to look like which basically says there's going to be a stronger fugitive slave law but no new territories are going to be able to enter the union with slavery not because of the constitution or because slavery is good or bad but because the climate and the land in these new lands just does not lend itself to this so why bother even trying it's he says that god has already decided in making the land the way it is it is 
a great compromise. Overall, uh, the North is deciding and coming to terms with this idea of compromising on slavery, and the abolitionists that are around are kind of feeling screwed, you know? This is their cause. These are supposed to be the people that back them up, and instead they've basically signed away human rights of slaves in the North. The Young Guard in the North, which is the sort of the people that are staunch abolitionists or free soilers at the least, that only had ever known the Union, that never knew when the Union wasn't going to be a sure thing, they get really mad, and they get really radical. W.H. Seward um, is the leader of the New Guard. He says, we cannot compromise. We will abolish slavery. This is what God has told us to do. Uh, Zachary Taylor says that he's going to veto any compromise. Zachary Taylor falls in line with this New Guard. He says, I will veto any compromise that comes to my desk. Um, then he dies. Um, which is inconvenient for the Whigs and for anyone who was an abolitionist. Millard Fillmore takes over. Millard Fillmore, who you might know Fillmore School of the Arts for in uh, Georgetown, Washington, D.C. He takes over and he immediately signs the Compromise of 1850 into law quite happily. Then comes the part where Clay and Webster have to convince the entire country, so they go around they speak, they convince people, this is a good thing. This is union. We are still alive. The fire eaters in the South, which are basically leave us alone with slavery or we're going to get out of here, are very angry, but the economy is good, so everyone stays quiet because no one's not benefiting. No one is losing out from this. Uh, the Nashville Secession Conference happens and nothing comes of it, and we go into this mini second era of good feelings. The issue of slavery is gone. Secessionism calls for it in the South to go way down. Slavery is over. That's the end of the podcast. I'm kidding, obviously. So the Compromise of 1850, the North... The North gets a new... The North basically gets a bunch of new free... Is being guaranteed a bunch of new free territories that are going to come with them and vote once they're states. Moreover, the North is getting richer, their population is getting bigger, and they're living longer. Um, just everything is coming up North uh, compared to the South. The North got a better deal. They got California, New Mexico, and Utah are going to enter. They say, supposedly, that they could do slavery, but they just aren't going to because of the land. And if they aren't going to, then the people that represent those states just are not going to care. So the South says, okay, if we're not going to get any more new slave states in the United States, let's look not in the United States. Let's look in other places. So they looked at the Caribbean. Um, meanwhile, for the South, for what they've gotten, Texas gets $10 million, but the land is free. They essentially, it's unclear if they get the land from the book's perspective, but the point being is that that land will not have slaves. D.C., instead of being a free territory, will instead uh, abolish the slave trade, but not slavery. And then the big, the, the crown jewel of this deal for the South is the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which really pisses off the North, um, but basically says any black person can be, any escaped slave can be taken down and reclaimed as a slave, even if they have escaped, even if they're in the North, and the North has to enforce this. Um, 
if they aren't a slave, too bad, because slaves can't testify. And if you're being considered a slave, you can't testify that you're not a slave. And they also essentially bribe the judges. So if the judge is overseeing the case, the judge, it's going to be a he at this point. You get $10. He will get $10 if he returns the slave. And he will get $5 if the slave gets to stay in the free north. If you are a white free person and you are helping out, uh, helping slaves avoid the fugitive slave law, then you go to jail or you get punished or fined or whatever. And this is one of those things where the South probably should have taken that slaves are going to run away and accepted it. Because instead of permanently bolstering the slave trade, the equal opposite reaction of this really radical slave law is that there is now a very radical movement rising through the North where these conservative Whigs who were really only in it for, you know, the fiscal and the government control part of it are now suddenly staunch abolitionists. The Underground Railroad suddenly way ups its activity. Um, Massachusetts uh, decides we're not going to even enforce this. Sorry about the Constitution. The mobs will sometimes come in and rescue slaves that are being taken um, other states say, sure, you can enforce this in our state, but you cannot use our jails to hold these slaves. Um, the South is pretty concerned and devastated about this because this is a deal. The North basically got every positive piece here except for this one thing. And now the North is going back on that. They said, you know, it's a, it's, it's corrupt based on an institution that is corrupt itself, we're not going to follow it. And if the South is saying, if they're not going to follow these compromises, then what do we have to do here in the Union? The two sides, the two sides have never liked each other, but now they're beginning to hate each other, which is not a good sign when two parts of your country are hating each other. Okay, so the year is 1852. The Democrats nominate Franklin Pierce, who is the young hickory of New Hampshire. Um, he's pretty weak. The Whigs uh, nominate, I believe, they nominate Millard, Millie, Mill, they nominate a military hero, there we go, they nominate Winf Winfield, General Winfield, Winfield Scott, um, who is pro-South, um, pro-compromise, and wants to expand, generally, are his main values. The Whigs could have gone and nominated a compromise hero, someone who got the compromise done, but they decided to go for someone who just hasn't touched the issue. Uh, as it always does, it becomes a personality fight. The Whigs are just too split because Winfield is pro-fugitive slave law. It might be Winfield. Don't quote me. Um, the South, though, doesn't even believe that he's pro-slave law, so he's getting the worst of both worlds. The North hates him for supporting the slave law. The South doesn't think he supports it. 5,000 people decide to go and vote for Daniel Webster, who is conveniently dead, at the moment, if you've watched The West Wing, you will know that dead candidates can, in fact, win office. Um, and John P. Hale, uh, who is a third-party candidate, I believe, for the Free Soilers, not totally sure, siphons off some votes. Pierce wins. That is it for the Whigs. The Whigs stay in Congress for a little longer. They're technically alive for a while, but they never actually... They never actually bring someone back to the White House. They never have a majority in either House of Congress again. And suddenly the Democrats, which are basically 
mainly south at this point, with uh, minus a few strongholds, New York and uh, the Butterball states. It's now sectional parties. So it's no longer these parties are unifying the parts of the country. It's now you vote for where you're from. Um, the Whigs held the Union together for a while with scotch tape and duct tape and glue and whatever types of tape you could think of in that stupid kind of tape that children were stealing from Maureen. They held it together, which is an admirable feat. But then it fell apart, which is less ideal. So, the South still wants more slave states, um, because all of these Mexican wins and all this California gold has led to more manifest destiny, but all the manifested destiny has been destinied, and the destiny that's been manifested is going to be free soil in all likelihood. So the South says, okay, just because we are manifest destinying, and that ran out in the North American continent, that doesn't mean we can't go elsewhere. Um... So a lot of attention turns to Central America, and for foreign powers, this is important, because if you can control Central America, you have a serious amount of power over the United States. The British, um, at points, try to or do control Nicaragua and Colombia. The U.S., they signed a treaty with the U.S. where basically the United States can pass through and use these areas, but they have to be neutral. This is the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty and neither will attempt to control a canal or a waterway or of some sort. The South, though, does not care, and they say, hey, look, more slave territory. They're thinking about Cuba. They're thinking about Mexico. They're thinking about Nicaragua. Nicaragua? Nicaragua. Um, William Walker uh, takes a group of armed men to Nicaragua and declares himself the president. Almost works, but then a bunch of Central American countries ally together and stop him from... Uh, taking over, and they hang him. Uh, Pierce decides to withdraw diplomatic support from Nicaragua. Also, a lot of questions about Cuba coming up, and who's going to control that in the future. Cuba already has a bunch of people that are already enslaved. Cuba's big enough and populous enough already to come in as multiple states. Polk, way back when, had offered the Spanish uh, $100 million for Cuba. The Spanish say, not a chance in hell, we would rather die than see you get it. So, a bunch of expeditions launch, two, it's not a bunch, two expeditions launch to, quote-unquote, take Cuba. They both fail. Uh, a lot of important Southerners die, and this is called filibustering. Don't totally know why. Um, Cuba retaliates, and they seize some U.S. black warrior ships um, on... There's something here. They seize them on a technicality. It's a tech, I can tell if it's a beach. Point being, Pierce could go to war about this. Europe is fighting the Crimean War, so they don't really have a lot of resources. Um, so the U.S. is thinking it might be time to go get Cuba. So U.S. diplomats in France and England and Spain draw up the Ostend Manifesto, which is basically... We're going to pay you $120, $120 for Cuba. Final offer. No, fine, $120 million. Um, and if Spain says no, then we go get it by other means. Then that leaks. The North is incredibly pissed off by that. They don't really understand what the deal is. And the whole thing is shelved for a while. After California and Oregon, the U.S. could be a big power of the Pacific, 
but I don't know how to tap the markets. We're shifting, by the way, we're shifting gears from South America to the Pacific, in case you didn't notice. The British had recently just won the right to peddle opium in China after the opium wars. Uh, they have access to the ports. They hold Hong Kong. So President Zachary, not President Zachary Taylor, President Tyler, from way back when, sends Caleb Cushing to go get the similar, a similar setup for the United States. Yes, so President Tyler from the early 1840s sends Caleb Cushing to go get a similar deal for the states. Um, they then, the two sides, the U.S. and China, signed the Treaty of... I'm going to butcher this, I apologize. I'm just going to spell it out, W-A-N-G-H-I-A, -A, uh, which really counterweights the British in July 1844. The U.S. gets uh, commerce rights. Uh, Americans, can, Americans accused of crimes get to be tried by U.S. courts. Trade with China goes way up, and then the United States decides to go and screw it up and send missionaries um, to China, and this really changes how the Chinese view Americans. So, the United States has a deal with China. They don't have anything in South America. Um, the next place they look to is Japan. Now, Japan, for a long time, has been isolated. It's the you-can-check-out-any-time-but-you-can-never-leave situation. It's the Hotel California, Japan. In 1853, they end that policy. So Fillmore sends ships to Japan commanded by Matthew Perry. Matthew Perry knows his stuff. He has read up on Japan. He knows Japanese history. He knows what the Japanese do and why they do it. Um, and he negotiates. He, he sort of lands outside of... The United States does not have the right to enter Japan. So they go as close to Japan as possible without being murdered. Um, and they negotiate their way on the shore. He impresses them. He gives them some crazy gifts. And he says, sleep on it. And then sleep on it again. And then sleep on it again. And then do that another 362 times. I'll be back in a year is what I'm saying. And then he returns with seven ships the next time. Brings some crazy gifts. He brings them a freaking miniature railroad. And don't forget, this isn't like Europe or any other country that has seen what the United States is doing or what other countries are doing and know how to build railroads or these things. Japan has been living in an isolation bubble, so they bring this miniature railroad. It's crazy. It's big. It's huge. Um, the Treaty of Kanagawa. Kanawaga? Kanagawa. I'm pretty sure that's Kanagawa. Um, Treaty of Kanagawa. Let's see what the... Kanagawa. I had it right the first time. I don't know why I doubted myself. March 1854 was when that signed... Shipwrecked sailors, which previously, if a shipwrecked sailor ended up in Japan, they could not They could not leave the island. They didn't really have rights. They get these rights, and foreign relations between the two countries are established. So, the United States has all this territory in the West. Now the question, of course, is how to get there. And speaking of railroads, uh, the railroad is really the only option to get there. Um, but what route? What route is that railroad going to take? Um, the part of the country that gets it is going to immediately benefit, because as we saw with the Erie Canal and other major transport improvements in the early mid-1800s, the mid-early 1800s, parts of the country that get transport have a boom. Chicago is a transport city, New York City, because it's where the Erie Canal eventually met the ocean, became New York City for that reason. So the South is thinking, okay, this is a good way to boost our stature. So they're thinking, 
goes through the southwest and ends up in Louisiana. But the best route for this railroad would be south of the border. So the Secretary of War, who is Jefferson Davis, you're going to hear a little more about him soon, he sends James Gadsden to Mexico. He gives Santa Ana $10 million. Uh, Santa Ana. Sorry. Um, he gives him $10 million for basically desert. Tucson is the area. Uh, and this is the Gadsden Purchase. And in 1853, the Senate passes it. And now the United States has this land primed and ready to go for a transcontinental railroad. The South is thinking, this is it, we, we want, this is ours, we have the railroad now, the north would have to, the only route the north could take would be through Nebraska, and Nebraska is not organized. So the north says, okay, let's get Nebraska. Um, only issue is that Nebraska is not really a state and no one lives there, but people can move there, people live near there, it's easier to move to than Cuba. So we've got, we're talking about railroads. This is going to very quickly turn into the rapid downfall of the United States, or specifically the Union, at least for a few years. There. Let's keep moving. Stephen Douglas, senator from Illinois, uh, is invested in Chicago, wants that to be the eastern terminus of the railroad. So he says, let's divide Nebraska. The bottom portion will be Kansas. The top portion will be Nebraska. Both sides will have popular sovereignty. They can decide if they want to be if they want to have slavery. And the assumption is that Kansas, further south, is going to have slaves. Nebraska, further north, is going to be free. One minor problem, the Missouri Compromise is sitting there right in the way. The Missouri Compromise, you can't go above the 3630 with slavery. And both of those places are above the 3630. So what does Douglas do? Does he respect the law that has basically been holding the Union together with scotch tape and duct tape for the last however many years? No, of course not. He goes and repeals it and pushes it through and debates it until it is no longer the law of the land. It is impulsive. It is reckless. Don't know why he did it. And to the north, the Missouri Compromise is an institution. It's important to them. It is, it is, it's huge. And they cannot believe that some guy has just gone up and gotten rid of it. So they basically say, you know what? We're not even going to listen to any future propositions on slavery. Um, the Democrats didn't really understand what just happened, but they were fine with it. Douglas, no one really knows what Douglas was thinking. No one really knows why Douglas did what he did, why he would basically sacrifice the sanctity of the Union, a law that was keeping the sanctity of the Union for a railroad that could have easily been built elsewhere. It might have been personal investments, but for someone so well-read, it's hard to imagine. 1854, though, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes. The North says, we're not going to compromise on this anymore. If you come to us with any more propositions about slavery, it's off the table. We're not going to, like, unless you come to us and say, we want to abolish slavery, we're not going to come and talk to you. Um, it was an act of bad faith, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And without compromise, there leads to conflict um, and ignoring of other laws. So the North basically starts to... In and ignore the fugitive slave law. They stop enforcing it. Um, the 1826 and 1850 compromises are completely wrecked. Both sides are just getting madder and madder by the moment. Angrier and angrier would be another way to say that, but 
emotions are running so high. Uh, it's Compromise of 1820, by the way, not 1826. Don't write about the Compromise of 1826. Uh, the Free Soilers um, then go try and to take Kansas. They think, okay, this has been an act of bad faith, so it is fine. We'll commit another act of bad faith. Two wrongs make a right, uh, and we'll go take over Kansas, and it won't be a slave state. The South is like, what the hell? You just came back. You just went back on a promise. How could you? The big effect here is that the Democrats, which were semi-cross-regional, shatter into two parts, and 1856 is the final election. They win until a long time later, like three or so decades. Um, additionally, a new Republican Party of sort of dissatisfied Whigs and Democrats and know-nothings, um, they suddenly come in and they go on a rampage. They get the Speaker of the House of Representatives, they get a lot of wins, they are not south of Maryland. They do not have a single person. They don't campaign south of Maryland. They don't try to be a countrywide party. They're specifically regional, which means basically, because the Democrats are about to split into Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats, the country is now three regional parties. The Republicans, who are abolition-y and North-y, the Northern Democrats, who are popular sovereignty and sort of free soil-y, and then there's the Southern Democrats, who are sticking along with slavery, suddenly we have three sectional parties. The country is no longer unified. The people they vote for are no longer unified. There are no compromises between states or between regions anymore. It's whichever region has the most people wins. And eventually one region's going to get mad and quit. Which takes us to chapter 19, which I will be getting to momentarily. But for now, that's chapter 18. So, quick recap of what just happened. Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo leads to a bunch of slavery questions. Zachary Taylor wins. You know, we forgot the air horn. I realize we forgot the air horn for Zachary Taylor, so let's 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 get that running real quick. Zachary Taylor wins. Zachary Taylor won. Very exciting. Um Gadsden purchase, other things. I just dropped all my note cards, so you're not getting a recap of this chapter. Instead, we're just going to throw it to the end credits. Thank you for listening. Come back soon for Chapter 19, where things are about to get a little more serious.